coming up on the As One Leadership Podcast. I get excited because Jesus is building his church and he is, you know, infinitely powerful and creative and good. And so the longer he does it and the more people he raises up and the more history they have, the more that is possible for our young people. So I'm super excited for what they could do. Welcome to the As One Leadership Podcast. My name is Luke Williams and I'll be your host. And today's guest is Kimberly Smith. Hello, Kimberly. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excellent. So, Kimberly, for those that don't know her, many of you probably do, but for those who don't, Kimberly works at the Baptist Union of Victoria. Uh, she works with emerging leaders there in a, a great role, which is really important in the church these days. But she's also a leading voice on the topic of singleness. And so, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some of those areas today. And we had a bit of a precast conversation and yeah. some of the stuff you said was fascinating and I realized how ignorant I am in some of those areas. So there's going to be lots we can learn. Oh, look, happy to help. Happy to help. Yeah, good. Excellent. <laughs> That's why you're here. So <laughs> I'm sure you'll be a help to everyone today. Um, so you've come today from Highton. I have. Yes. Geelong. Across the other side. Yes. Yeah. So we're in the southeast of Melbourne. So a couple of hours to get here today. Yeah. So yeah, thank but you it's so much. okay. It's worth it to be able to live in Highton. So yeah, well, you don't even say Highton, do you? So Highton. Highton, yes. Mm. It's like the ritzy part of Geelong, right? Brighton of Highton. Yes. Mm. Our producer Nathan's from Highton as well. So Yeah, he's good stock. I'm a bit outnumbered today. <laughs> I'm just from the Bogan, southeast of Melbourne. So, um, But it's great to have you with us. And I thought we'd start today by talking a bit about your generation's role. So I got to know you a little bit working at the BUV in recent times, and um, the role you play there is really important. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what that role is? Yeah, so by title, it's the Generations and Emerging Leaders Pastor. And um, as that expresses itself, it's to essentially be the pastor for the pastors who are engaged in generational ministry. So kids, youth, families, young adult, however that expresses in in the local church. We've got um, over 240 churches across our state. So it's connecting with with, um, a diverse group of churches and people that are engaged in um, just, you know, following Jesus and being church in their local context. And so just wanting to champion them, be an outside voice, you know, a a place of encouragement, provide some training, some connection to each other. Mm. But then also a big piece of my work there and um, a high value of us as a, as the Baptist family is that churches would be really considering what it looks like to think and act generationally. Mm. So um, you've got a lot of churches that too small or not positioned to have paid staff in generation um, roles. So what does it look like for them still to think about how we're connecting across the generations um, for a church to flourish? It has to be part of the the narrative of the story or part of their focus for a church. And so um, just encouraging churches in that, that place, so, which I love to do. And also just helping us as a movement, just continually asking the question, what's changing in culture? Are we responding as we should? You know, what are the new um, challenges for our churches and the people who are serving in them? How can we be best be equipping them and, and really encouraging a focus and intentionality around the emerging leaders piece? Yeah, so I think the change in our society and culture has been so quick mm. that I spoke at church on the weekend about being a little bit like the frog in the boiling water where we've kind of been immersed in this Christian country or Christendom or whatever you want to call it and mm. the change has been so rapid that I think a lot of Christians are like that frog that the temperature's risen yeah. and things have changed yeah. and they just haven't realised it and they haven't made the adjustments. So and, true. and that's why I think a lot of churches are dying off and losing relevance and not reaching their community. So. And, or they're noticing it at boiling point mm. and, so, and then yeah. they're suddenly it's trying crisis. to yeah respond or, or react more than respond because they're suddenly in that critical place um, as opposed to this is getting warmer. Mm. <laughs> are we responding to this? Is there something we could do about this and just um, a greater 
greater awareness of the culture that they're swimming in, essentially. Yeah. So when we were young, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it makes it sound really old, doesn't it? Very different. But you know, people grew up going to Sunday school, yeah. and um, if they didn't, they they respected a Christian worldview. Yeah. Um, these days, that's not the case with the majority no. of people, and so waiting for people to walk in the front door of churches is is a pretty futile exercise in yeah. mission. And so, what does it look like to engage? And so, I think these emerging generations they're thinking about those questions, and and the role you've got at the the BUV is a really big one because I think statistics say that what, two out of three young people people that grow up in church don't stay in church in their adult years. And yeah. so um, why do you think that's the case? Yeah. It's it's an alarming statistic, isn't it? It needs to sort of confront us a little bit when we hear that, particularly when you put, you turn it from a statistic to some faces and some names. You know, so many people, you have three children. Like mm-hmm. if two out of three children don't, you know, persist in faith into adulthood, what does that look like in your family, let alone then let's multiply that out across the, the the broader church. But I think young people leave church for the same reason anybody leaves church. You know, there's a sense of disillusionment or um, it just isn't what they need or what they thought it could be. You know, there's a um, um, incongruency that they're seeing between what they're hearing about faith and what is being lived. Um, you know, often for people it's it, faith didn't work for them. You know, I mean, you can talk to adults who walked away from faith for the same reason. And it's that um, when it it wasn't robust enough, or they're either their own personal faith or what they knew of faith wasn't robust enough to withstand any sort of challenge, you know, whether mm. that's the challenge of science and intellect, you know, that it feels like you got to, it's one or the other, you know, yeah, you're either a yep. Christian or you're smart, you know, sort yep. of thing. Um, so, but how does Christianity stand up to that challenge or their own understanding of it? Um, it could be, you know, did it, how did their own personal faith or their perception of faith stand up to um, suffering, you know, personal loss, grief, trauma, challenge, mm. um, you know, often that's an obstacle. And so I think all those things that are true for adults who walk away from faith or even for adults who reject faith from the outside Mm. is that's the same reason that our young people are leaving. But I think, um, understanding how that is, is shaped by culture, you know, how it is that, um, as you mentioned, that it's an increasingly less Christian culture that they're living in. And so, I mean, we've always understood the message of Jesus to be countercultural, but that has to be a much stronger part of our our um, perspective of what faith is because it is more countercultural yep. than it used to be. And I think we had a we sort of had a um a complacency almost, I think, around faith generations ago because uh, I think I mentioned to you in listening to a an um a podcast that was referencing a an article that was written in the 80s in the age and it started out as a Christian culture, dot, dot, dot. like, and you know, who would write that in the age now? Like, Nobody. no one thinks that's true. You know, no one would claim that. And that's the eighties. That's only, you know, 30 something years ago. It's not like hundreds of years ago. Yep. Um, but there's been that shift, but as you say, frog in the, in the slightly warming water. And we forget that we're holding a very countercultural message and we perhaps haven't communicated it that way Um, and so we've in some ways as as leadership as older generations we can take some ownership of not setting our kids up to win in that yeah I think when you're at the center of a culture which Christianity has been in the west for so long you do get complacent because you're kind of in power and people get comfortable Mm -hmm. and 
And I think, you know, history would show, and even in scripture, the church needs to be more effective when it's on the fringe anyway. And so a lot of Christians, I think, at the moment are wrestling with, oh, it's not fair and we're losing our rights. And um, just yeah. spoke on the weekend at church about changing our mindset from being victims to visionaries because victims are stuck in the past or yeah, present reality. Yeah. yeah. Visionaries choose to see what things could be. Mm, and so I think training our young people to to dream about what could the kingdom of God look like in our culture in years to come and, and how can they uniquely shape that is yeah. is a really great challenge yeah. um, for them to think about. So mm-hmm. so I was going to ask you, uh, before I go on, I think the, um, the part you talked about, the personal piece, yeah. I think that's really important too because statistics are very helpful. Yeah. But, I, you know, two out of three, yeah. yep, you hear that. Numbers. But i got four kids. If three out of four kids weren't walking with the Lord, yeah. that'd break my heart, yeah. you know, and yep. and the generations going forward are profoundly affected because... There's such a ripple. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I um, preach this quite often in churches as part of my role, and even just this last weekend, um, preaching into a space, raise your hand if you grew up in church. And so, you know, obviously the church is full of adults mostly at that mm-hmm. point. And, um, and in the particular church I was in, I would say at least 80 percent of maybe 90 percent of the people put their hand up they grew up in church and I said keep your hands up and just look around and imagine if two-thirds of you weren't here you know and just the loss immediately to this community right now if you guys are taken out of it but then historically your kids probably weren't exposed to faith you know their kids probably wouldn't be exposed to faith if if you weren't in faith you know what what has been happening here in this the locality of that church in their community how would that be diminished if you weren't here? You know, there's mm. so many, um, so so much greater impact than even the fairly significant one of the personal <laughs> salvation of the individual. You know, yeah, but there, sure. but there's so much else that's lost if that person walks away from faith too. And so, yeah, it, it, I think what is it? We have to be alert, not alarmed, or you know, like in terms of it should at least sort of raise our. Um, our sensitivities and and sort of switch us into a place of greater awareness without necessarily freaking out, you know, but but moving us to action. You know, mm. what are we doing? What have we been doing? What could we be doing? You know, yeah. what what part do we play in this for our young people? I think it's a really important thing to start doing some evaluation on it. Yep. Yeah, Christopher Wright in his commentary on Jeremiah um, is talking about what the exiles had to be like mm. in, in Babylon in, you know, 600 BC. And he talked about them having to go from being refugees to residents, from mourners to missionaries, yeah. and from victims to visionaries. Yeah, it's good. And it's so relevant so for us important. right now. Yeah. You know, it's the same sort yeah. of mindset we've got to have to reaching our community. And yeah, yeah so the big challenges and um, your role is a really significant one. So the question I have to ask is, is it hopeless? Uh, <laughs> do we just throw our hands in the air and give up? Or, yeah. or are yeah, there things yeah. we can do? Yeah, okay, great. All right. <laughs> End of podcast. So, yeah, We're done. that's yeah. great. I was hoping you wouldn't <laughs> say that. Right. but uh, No. Okay, right, cut. Um, and so is it hopeless? Or no, it's not hopeless. So are there things that we can do better to engage um, with younger people, to connect with younger generations? And more importantly, how can we help our young people to become more resilient disciples? Yeah. Yeah, when good. those, like you said before, when the crisis happens, when the, the different opinions they hear, the science they confront, how do they become more resilient in their faith? Yeah, well, I am the eternal optimist, so that, <laughs> so that helps. It's a good way to be. Um, it makes you, <laughs> makes you more robust in the face of all those challenging statistics. But um, but my the greatest sense of confidence I have is that Jesus said he will build his church. Yeah. So I think um, as alarmed, alert, 
panicked, freaked out as we might be by the statistics and, and even as disheartened as we may get by seeing how that's playing out in our current context or in various, you know, places of even personal engagement with our own children or, you know, the, our own communities of faith. Um, Jesus said he'll build his church. And I think um, there's a great comfort in that promise because essentially he says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So you or I aren't powerful enough to cut it down either. Like there's nothing that you or I can do that's going to actually end the church for good because this is Jesus' promise. This is his plan. So I think the thing for us is just to work out how we can get on board with what he's building. And also I think the challenge for us as a generation, as a as a moment in time in the big picture history of the the church of God is to say, what will this part of history say about the church? Like what, what's the story story that we're writing right now in terms of, um, you know, is it going to be like we see, you know, biblically and historically where essentially the church kind of dwindles down to the remnant few that just hang on and just manage to sort of continue. (laughs) Or do we tell a story of a, a church that, that turned, you know, that all the curves started bending up and to the right, you know, that in within um, our season of, of church and the, the stewardship that we had of, of Jesus' church in this moment, that we did what we had to do and we asked the questions and did the uncomfortable things and made the changes that were necessary to actually see this change. And so I have great hope in that because the it, we do this in the power of the spirit who in, you know, a God who is infinitely creative, infinitely powerful. So he's got this, you know, so I think for us, the the question is how can we get on board with, you know, find him where he's, where he's at, you know, where he's um, active and just partner with him, but also, you know, what's the work that we need to do personally to kind of get ourselves out of the way of that, you know, our tradition, our personal preference, you know, the, the way we've always done it, you know, (laughs) that doesn't have any churches though. No, not, not much, not Not unless you need to move an organ, but other than that, (laughs) they're generally open. That's right. But you know, this sort of forward thinking attitude. So yes, I, I, I think there is hope. There's always hope. But um, some of our, the research that we're seeing around this that I think is particularly hope-inducing is that um, there's a, a statistic or, a, you know, some research that tells us that one of the key factors for um, determining, a, you know, a, a young person re- retaining faith or church engagement into adulthood is that they are known by name by five adults, mm, wow. which sounds so simple. And I mean, if I had have left a pause there for everybody to finish that sentence, like what's the one thing that, <laughs> you know, everyone yep. might have filled in their own gap there of, you know, it's it's sound biblical teaching, it's prayer, it's, you know, um, a certain style of worship, it's community, you know, whatever it is that other people might have thought was the answer to that. Ultimately, as as important and significant and necessary as all of those other factors are, the overriding thing is relationship. Mm. And so um, the thing I love about that stat is that it puts it in the hands of everybody to be part of reversing the trend. Mm. So it's not just the theologians. It's not just the professionals. It's not just people with leadership capacity, it's its literally everybody has the has a part to play in creating an environment where young people feel like they belong, they're welcome, they're known and they're seen, um, that there is a place for them to, because um, within that, when, when you start fleshing out what does healthy relationship and healthy environment look like, it's going to position our young people to do the work to have a deep faith that will sustain, you know, so it's, it's space for questions. They can 
They can be mad at God. They can say, but is that even real, you know, about the Bible? You know, yeah. <laughs> they can say, you know, but my teacher said that this didn't happen, you know, that that's not true. And we can actually engage that without being horrified and, and them not feeling like that, well, apparently we don't talk about that here, you know. it's like, sure. yeah. um, And so that key thing about relationship. And then if you start thinking about that, everything will flow out of, you know, flows from that because the closer you are with with others you're able to challenge them you are able to you know journey through some of those more um personally challenging times like so when suffering does hit we can walk that together rather than you probably will walk away from church to find a way to process that you know all those sorts of things that so relationship is actually the answer you yeah. know in that sense no. and everyone can do that everyone exactly. can know five people and know their names yeah. and and I think, you know, it's really encouraging what you're talking about is what, what are we going to be? What are people going to look back on this generation and say that's what the church was? And uh, Mark Sayer's recent book, Reappearing Church, was mm-hmm. was really encouraging because it talks about the history of renewal. Yeah. And every time there's a downturn, God's preparing something great um, to come. And, yeah. and we can be part of that by, you know, seeking God and coming back to him and doing some of those simple things like relationship and um, having robust discussions yeah. and and helping our young people say that to be a Christian, you don't have to check your brain at the yeah, door. Exactly. You can actually fully engage your brain and God wants yeah. you to. In fact, God gave you the brain yeah. and God created everything. Yeah. So um, he's yeah, the he's the source good. of knowledge we can come back to. So yeah, yeah so that's really good. So Resilient Disciples, um, there's a book recently that I think you've read called Faith for Exiles. Mm-hmm. And it talks in there about the importance of intergenerational relationship. So in your role with younger generations, what would you say about the importance of, you know, mentoring, uh, deliberate investment in, in young people's lives and how important that is. Yeah, it becomes key. I mean, just on the basis of that, you know, idea about relationship being the most significant thing. Obviously, if you've got a mentor, they'll know your name. And so <laughs> there's one adult. We can tick off the list yeah. of, of the five. <laughs> um, but I think anything you do to move that into a more intentional space is going to be you know, is going to reap dividends. It's going to um, bear fruit. And um, and I think it's a, it's a really important um, conversation or topic, you know, a, a message for our older generations to hear, which is that young people need you, you know, they, and they want you, they may not have the language to express that. And in fact, they may express it in a way that looks like they don't, <laughs> but they actually do. And, um, I mean, what we see, you know, sociologically or developmentally is that, um, you know, in a young person's process of, discovering themselves, you know, everyone's on the quest for independence or self-authorship as they call it, where they're looking to be their, the leader of their own destiny and, you know, manage their own life. There is a point in teen um, years where there, there appears to be, or there is to a certain extent, a separation from parents. So, um, I mean, what we understand though is parents are always the number one influences of their children, always like negatively or positively when they say, when they're like, we hate you and we're not listening to you or when they love you, like always. (laughs) Um, Sometimes on the same day. Sometimes in the same (laughs) conversation. Um, But what we see though is, is this sense of, of our young people, you know, in, sort of mid-teen years, they start actually looking because they're, they're wanting to have their own opinion and they're wanting to do things because they want to do things, not just because dad said so or mum said so. And they want to have that sense that I'm making a choice about where my life's going. But then they're looking for other people to affirm the choice that they might make or, you know, give them another option. And so at that point, other adults in the life of a children, uh, a child, Orange phrases it as um, adult, other adults saying the same thing a loving Christian parent would say. Mm. 
So essentially looking for somebody who they think is a bit cool because they're not mum or dad, you know, or um, they may be a little bit closer to them in age, but still older, you know, still adult. Um, But that if they're, they're saying what mum says or they're saying what dad says, then it's going, it's affirming something about their own personal belief. And so it's going to be a helpful thing for them embedding that sense of, I believe it because I chose to take that opinion from that person rather than dad told me this is what I had to believe. I, I remember a, couple, a few years ago with one of my daughters, you know, around dating and um, some of the advice I was giving her at the time, you know, which was, I think, very good advice. Yeah, of course it was. And, you know, didn't want to listen. Yeah, what, what would you, would know, you know, Dad? Dad? Yeah, you know, I think they get to an age where everything you know is wiped, and all of a sudden they have this instant download and they know everything. And so I wouldn't listen to anything. Anyway, she eventually decided to catch up with a, a girl at church, a, a woman. Um, she would be probably a few years younger than me, but not many young years younger. And she gave my daughter the same advice. And then she came home and she said, "Oh, so and so told me this and this, and <laughs> it was so good." And I'm thinking. Yeah. Hello, McFly. I've been yeah. saying that for every Sounds year. Familiar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's but right. But it happens in everything. I mean, parents who've got young children know this. You, your child comes home and they've had the dental van come and visit, mm-hmm. and they come running in. Mom, we have to brush our teeth up and down. And it's like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I've been telling yeah. you this for eight years or whatever it is. <laughs> right. But suddenly it's new information to them. And but it is it's that self-ownership or authorship where mm-hmm. our young people are looking to know stuff because they've discovered it, mm-hmm. not because they feel they've been forced to believe or agree with a certain way of thinking or behaving. And so the importance then, roundabout, come back to your question, mentoring, you know, intentional investment from older adults is so key. You know, and this is where, you know, our youth ministries and our um, and this sense of in engagement cross-generationally in churches is so significant because it exposes our young people to older adults Mm. that they can choose then to engage these sort of topics of conversation, to ask the questions, to to be relationally close enough where they, you know, Dad doesn't get it, but I think you'll know the answer. And if and if you're doing that with Christian adults, you're probably getting the same answer that yeah. you would have got from Dad. Yep, but so. it's but it's probably yep. more right because it came from somebody else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more palatable, at least. Yeah. yeah. For sure. So that in, <clears throat> intentional investment, those um, relationships of significance to to key leaders in their life, or what it becomes super super important. Mm. And I think that's a great thing for our senior adults to understand we have a lot to offer our young people yeah. and they want it from us you know they and they need it from us um even if they grunt or don't make eye contact when you're trying to talk to them or um even if you feel like you're a little uncool or you know i don't know what to talk about you know so how is the interwebs going yeah. you know like <laughs> i don't know right. what to talk to a young person about but yeah. they're actually not necessarily looking for you to be like them mm. they're looking for people who are showing them how to live out some of the things that they're wrestling with and who've got a story to tell them of an experience or a way that they came to understand something or process something. Everyone has so much to give. And so those mentoring, coaching, more intentional relationships are just key. Yeah. No, that's really good. And I think it's a a good challenge for churches to think about how they can help foster that intergenerational stuff, Mm. not just in their programs, but in, you know, intentional relationship. And that's really good. So so you're working with emerging leaders. So you'd work with a lot of great young developing leaders. What are some of the trends you're seeing um, in these leaders as they develop? Yeah. 
Yeah, I do work with some great ones. And there are some good ones up and coming. It's exciting to see them grab um, grab hold of that and that ownership. I think, um, I mean, when I first came into this role at the BUV, I actually sort of put the thing out there, like, how do I help you? How do we, the BUV resource, you know, leaders in our churches, what, what are you looking for? And the two things they talked about um, consistently were they want connection with each other and then um, skill development or training. And so I think that's, it is reflective of, of a generational trend or, I mean, I guess it's true across most generations, but they, gen- they have a sense that of, um, of wanting to know that they're not the only ones doing this. And I think probably growing up in a very connected world, you know, um, through, through technology and, and social media, that they're aware that they're not the only person mm. <laughs> doing this, which perhaps you go back a couple of de- generations and we might not have been that aware because you are just in your own patch and your, you know, your ability to actually track what's happening outside of that is, wasn't as, um, you know, well resourced, but, um, so they're, they're looking for that sense of, I don't need to start from scratch here because somebody else is probably thinking, what I'm thinking, or they've already thought what I'm thinking. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, there's probably somebody out there who's already tried this and knows the better way, you know, and so they're looking for that kind of connection. Um, and so bring, bringing them into, and that ends up being a big part of my role, just get you together, you know, get you in the same, the same space or, or even just, you know, um, identify that link. You're asking this question. That's what they've been working on for the last three years. Go see what, where they've got to, um, with that. So the collaboration piece, I think is really important. Um, and it's, and it's what leaders who are emerging are looking for. They're not looking for that, you know, top down kind of leadership thing where someone comes down from the mountain with the idea and we all just follow it. You know, it's like, let's talk all of this out. Let's collaborate and work together, but also just a really deep sense of wanting to learn, you know, that they, they have a passion, um, to upskill, you know, they're, they're ready to be, um, told, you know, given tips and tools and tricks of the trade to actually make what they do, um, better. And it's an interesting generational, um, kind of picture because I think we often talk about the emerging generations as being um, a little bit entitled or they're wanting the shortcut, you know, they want to be CEOs by the time they're 28, you know, but, and then we've got this whole sort of um, whole, you know, swag of older people in leadership who are like, well, I had to work at it and I had to, you know, like, I don't know why they all talk slow and old, but, you know. Uh, yeah, it was a week and, yeah, the horse and cart. Yeah, no, that's right. I walked to school uphill and then walked home uphill, you know, it's, um, pulled myself up by my bootstraps and there can be a little bit of a disconnect that happens there because I think what we're seeing from our young people is this eagerness and the resistance from older generations can perceive that in, you know, to be an entitlement that they just want to leap, you know, stages of life. Like, but, and I think it's true in some ways, but I think all of us were like that young. No one wanted to like, can I please wait 50 years until I can have this job? You know, no one was, that wasn't on anybody's heart, but I think, um, and and in fact, if you go back sociological, sociologically, um, the, the baby boomer generation, one of the key pieces of research and, and reporting that happened around the shift of that generation was named the me generation. Like that was the title of the report. And so being about ourselves is not new to emerging generations. It's, it's every generation accuses the next generation. (laughs) It's like, um, but yeah, so I think the, the challenge for our young people is, I mean, they're young and so there's an immaturity there and so they perhaps don't actually under, you know, come at it the right way. You know, they may not ask the question 
in this sort of humble kind of like, please, <laughs> could you teach me? They're like, that looks easy. I should be able to do that. You know, it's like, but I think behind it is a desire to actually learn from other people mm-hmm. in a way that, um, that would would catapult them into greater and better and more without having to fall into the same traps that we fell into or make the same mistakes that we've made, you know, to actually learn from that. Yep, for mm. sure. So I think, I mean, one of the trends you touched on, I think is definitely true, and that is the collaboration piece. And I can see it in younger generations, and I think that's influencing the church as a whole. So we're seeing, you know, probably a diminishing of uh, denominations and, you know, cross generations, cross church, and uh, less competition, less, and it's probably because of the, I guess the culture's changed to be more post-Christian now. It makes no sense to be fighting over your patch. Yeah, you know, yeah. you've actually got to work, work together, together to reach the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really encouraged by that. And I'm encouraged to hear that some of those younger generations are, are doing that as well. You touched on um, before social media and the impact that's had. And one of the positives is that you're connected and you, you know that other people have done it and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think one of the downfalls is the comparison. Yeah. You, you see someone else and you go, oh, gee, their youth group looks so amazing and they must be so much better than I am. And Which it probably does on Instagram. Yeah, it does because we always <laughs> see the highlights, don't we? That's we don't right. see the behind yeah. the scenes when everything's falling apart. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, and the perfect family yeah, shot. But that's right. It took 20 minutes that's to get the kid right. to stop fighting with the other kid. And exactly. All that. So we, uh, we get fooled into thinking, gee, all these perfect lives and my life's not like that. Yeah. When I think we're all in the same boat in a lot of ways. But Reflecting on social media and how much it's changed our world, Mm. what do you think are some of the positive and negative impacts that it's had on emerging generations? Well, I I think the connectedness is a positive. You know, and I mean, I was just with a group of people um, on Monday for catching up for lunch. We hadn't seen each other for three or four months, but we had this level of awareness of each other's lives because we connect online. You know, so we were able to start straight in with how's the new puppy and how's this, you know, rather than so what have you been doing for the last four months? You know, fill us in. And so there's a connectedness and an awareness that, I mean, everything has a shadow side, but I think there's a a positivity to that. Um, And I mean, an ability for a rural church, you know, you think in my context of the role that I have, an ability for a church that's way out in the boonies, you know, four hour drive from any other kind of um, place that they could connect with other people and yet can get online, you know, see stuff, download things, do face-to-face with people, you know, like, so there's so many benefits in that sense of connectedness and shared stuff. I think, you know, the flip side of that is, um, there's a, a challenge for us not to be distracted by how available all that stuff is, because I think, you know, the, um, our ability to just stay one track for a little while is being diminished by the fact that we're just so, um, stimulated, you know, there's so many things happening around us all the time that can, can distract us. And I think that's, that's true of the, the social media space, whether it's just because it's in your hand. And I mean, the number of times, you know, you sort of pick up your phone for something like real, like to, you know, call somebody yeah, or do something. I mean, I don't know. I don't answer phone calls. I'm like, message me. Um, but the, but then you sort of suddenly find yourself down this deep dive of like distracted by a, an, an alert to something, you know, and so that is a challenge for all of us. And I think to the, um, the, the challenge to be, um, to go deeper is, is confronted there because I think we've almost been trained to be a little bit surface because mm. literally you scroll, you know, you kind of flick, flick, flick. Oh, that's interesting. Flick, flick, flick. Oh, that's interesting. And I think that can actually translate into a way that we just do life, you know, yeah, it's just sort of, sure. we're, we're just hovering on the surface a little bit rather than taking those deep dives. So there's challenges, but I think 
even, as I said, it's like light and shade to the same issue because I think technology has a positive answer to even its own negative, negative impact, you know? So like just as, um, the challenge that now, you know, emails, messages, whatever can come at any time of night, well, technology also has, you know, you can turn it off, so mm, yeah, you know, or yep. you can put it on do not disturb, or you can do all those sorts of things too. So it's not just about, um, it's not all negative, you know, and even its own negativity, it can compensate for itself. Yeah. Like, you know, and I think increases our capacity for productivity and efficiency and all those sorts of things as well, mm. but it's a, a thing to be managed. Yeah, for sure. I think the other challenge for in the technology space is we've got an access to information that hasn't been filtered mm. and we can access that ourselves. And then we look at it only through our own lens. And so that's the ask Google and suddenly, you know, it's the, the Dr. Google and mm. we're diagnosed diagnosing ourselves because we're not sort of talking <laughs> about cancer. it. Yeah, no, it's a cold, like, yeah. yeah, there's two things this could be. I may already be dead or I'm about <laughs> to die. You know, it's like, um, so I think there's a challenge for us in, um, in how are people are accessing, I mean, theology that may be a bit skewify or perspectives, you know, that don't actually apply into our context or, um, or at a level of maturity or intellect or education that we're not actually processing that as well as it could be. So I think that's a challenge flip side. You've got access to all this great information <laughs> as well. So that's, it's always holding both sides of the yeah. I've read a bit of stuff recently that talks about it being like the digital Babylon. So in the Bible, Babylon's like the culture that wants to kind of shape every other culture and change you to fit their mold and, um, that social media and the internet's a little bit like that where it's kind of all pervasive and yeah. it's it's in your bedroom, it's on your screen, people are being discipled by it. So I, I really sense we're at a time um, as church leaders where we need to actually train our people to be a bit disciplined in it and to put those boundaries in place because yeah. they don't have boundaries. It's 24 hours, it's bib, 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 it's, you know, you're not sleeping well, you're distracted. Um, we say we can multitask, but yeah. I think that's a myth. We're, not, yeah, just we're just doing a, a whole bunch of stuff mm. poorly. Um, and so, and I'm not sure we'll know the full impact of it for maybe 50 years and yeah. we'll look back and it'll be once again, the frog in the pot yeah. kind of situation where everything's changing around us and we're just kind of consuming it all, yeah. but it could end up doing a lot of damage. So I think we've got to try and help our young people mm-hmm. to, um, yeah, embrace all the positives of yeah. it and, and use it for information yeah. and connection and all that stuff, yeah. but also be disciplined enough to, you know, when you get home with your family. Yeah. Plug it in on the bench, spend time with your family. Yeah, put it away. You don't have to answer calls. You don't have to be looking at Facebook. Um, when you go to bed, put it in a different room if you can't stop looking at it till 3 o'clock in the morning. Those kind of things I think are a challenge for, for us. And because the reality is that as young people, they, do, they don't have the maturity or intellect to know what they don't know. Mm. And so as adults in their world, we do have to help them self-regulate because the it's not a criticism of emerging generations. It's just brain development. You know, they don't have the forward thinking that we have. They don't have the sense of recognising how these things are impacting each other, you know, that they're finding it hard to get out of bed in the morning because they're up late at night because they are staying on, you know, they're not mate joining those dots. So it, for adults, that's actually our job is to join dots for, for young people that yep. they can't join themselves. And also I think there's a call for us to be quite empathetic to young people about social media internet, how, what it looks like for them. The reality of my growing up years was that if, when I left school, I didn't have any contact with my 
friends until I was back at school, you know, and, and if I did, it was on a phone in a public space, you know, like, and my brother's trying to pick up on the other line and, you know, teasing us and whatever else, (laughs) like, um, and there was a disconnect that we had, but that they don't have. And, but that should call us to empathy. That's hard. Mm. It's hard when hard relationships or hurtful relationships follow them home, Mm. you know, it increases it's, it's sort of contributes to mental health challenges and stress that our young people are facing that we just never had to to consider. And so I think it needs to draw us to empathy though. Rather, we, it's a, a temptation to sit in judgment. Oh, those young people, they're always on their phone. In my day, we just got on our bike and we went for a ride. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. We're not in your day yeah, anymore. Thanks, yeah. Nan. Yeah. Um, you know, but rather than to say, actually, this is hard. Like it must be hard for you to process this. I use the the personal disclose personal disclosure of a of um, my own teenage angst where I was um, I was a poetry writer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Very deep, very emotional Did you expression. Bring it with you or? Oh, look, I forgot it. But oh, okay. um, <laughs> I have this well, I've kept it though for such a time as this. But um, I've I've got it one journal from when I was 16 years old, and on one side is this poem that I've written because I've broken up with my boyfriend. Right. And it includes the line, people say I should get on with my life but he was my life. Right? Yeah. This is where I was at, but it was real. I was feeling it completely. Yep, sure. Next page is about this new guy that I met. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there was even more than a day between the two entries. Yep. And, you know, he, he smiled at me and all this sort of stuff. But I think if I was a 16-year-old today, that would have been on my social media. You know, yeah, somewhere yep. in that I would have made that way more public. Mm. Um, I probably, you know, the relationship itself would have been on social media and then the breakup would have been on, you know, change status to single, you know, whatever it is. And yeah. all of that would have happened in a public space. And that would not have been helpful to my capacity to process yeah. those things. It would have added fuel to a fire that was already hot enough in terms of my emotional instability and my immaturity. But pe- young people are not any more mature at 16 than I was at 16, but they're trying to navigate a space that requires a lot of maturity. And I think, as I say, I think it just needs to keep drawing us to empathy. Like I often say, I just, I'm, I feel bad for you. or I'm, I know there's a struggle for you that you have to try and navigate this in such a public kind of way or in a, in a completely different way. Yeah. And I think like you're saying with social media, because it is such a public journey, you've got more people journeying with you, but not in a helpful way. Not necessarily. It goes to tribalism. So, you know, you break up with the boyfriend and then all of your friends, ah, he was no good. It's his loss. And all of a sudden you're feeling validated and it might not be the most helpful way to process that. Um, And it might end up with, you know, unforgiveness or bitterness or whatever as a result. So I think, yeah, learning to help our, our young people to see the, the benefits and the struggles is is a really important part of leadership. So an important part of your role, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. and the encouragement of, of all of us to be facing that way. Mm, yeah, for sure. Very good. So um, in your work with emerging leaders, um, so obviously you spend a lot of time with them, you hear their stories, their journeys, their ups and downs, mm-hmm. their successes, their failures, their mm-hmm. joys, their struggles. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest issues or the most common issues they're facing? Yeah, um, I think when we talk about Christian leadership, it is what we've already mentioned about the increasingly hostile or counter, you know, cultural or anti-Christian, post-Christian, whatever we want to call it, that environment leading into that space is different than 
than the same role in even in the same church 20 years ago. It really is different. So I think for our Christian leaders, as we talked about before, it's, you know, we need to help them um, in their own faith, in the, the robustness of that faith, but also how that applies to leadership, you know, what it is that they're trying to navigate. Um, and I think too that, you know, generationally, what we're seeing now, I mean, this is happening in the workplace as well. You know, it, we're unprecedentedly, we have four generations of people working in the same workplace, you know, it's the, because oldies are staying longer and younger are starting younger and we've just got this spread. And I think for our emerging, like, that's a, it's a big challenge to try and navigate that you know, to be the new kids on that block. And it's a very full block. And so I think, um, I don't think it's, it's quite as clear the pathway through to, to advancing stages of leadership in terms of authority and responsibility, because you've got people that are holding on to these roles longer, which means the trickle down effect is that they may have to be in a holding pattern for a little bit longer before they get to take next steps mm. in their leadership. Yep. And so I think that's a challenge. It's a challenge for our young people to sort of hold themselves in a, in a place of humility and, and openness and, and readiness to learn all they can learn, you know, so they would be prepared for whatever comes next, however long that takes. But I think, I think it's a real challenge for us as as the oldies, you know, putting myself in the category, I normally try and avoid that. That's yeah, why I work in generations <laughs> ministry is stay young, stay young. Um, but we're the ones that need to make space for these guys to, to get their opportunity, you know, for these young women and men who are, um, are, are being told they can be leaders and they're being, you know, invested in to lead, but then may not necessarily get the opportunity to really have have that experience and and put that into practice. I think that's a challenge for our young people and for our churches to embrace. Mm. So I think the workplace, as you mentioned, is a really big thing, and there is these clashing generations. And obviously, the older generation think and operate and have experienced very different things yeah. to the younger generations, yeah. um, the Gen Zs, the Millennials, these sort of types. They're wired very differently. Yeah. They came out of the womb with an iPhone in their hand. Yeah. You know, they've never known life without the internet, yeah. um, all that sort of stuff. So. There's a lot of, I guess, assumptions they make about each other. The old people assume the young people all like this and the young people assume all the old people are like that. What do you think are some of those assumptions and what would you say to the older leaders? I think you just talked about making space, which is one great thing. Yeah. But what would you also say to the emerging leaders to help them, I guess, work in harmony with older people and also to be productive together? Yeah. They both bring different things to the table. For sure. And I think the starting point is re realising that we all do have a perspective that we're lo looking at everything through. You know, I think we kind of tend to think there's mine, which is obviously like the actual one, mm. and then everyone has a different one. Yeah. Different <laughs> so we like start here yep. and then everyone's like the the contrary one, but the reality is everybody's is contrary to everybody else's. You know, we're, yeah. we're all looking at it from a slightly different angle. And if we all had the Luke filter, it would make life a lot easier, wouldn't, wouldn't it? it though? Yeah, yes, it would for, be, be boring, Luke. but it would yeah. be a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might make it easier yeah, for you. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think... I, I think it's it's important um, for our younger people to recognise that because I think it, it's the empathy piece again that it's like it's not like old people are deliberately trying to make things difficult for us. You know, they have a different perspective. They see things differently. They prioritise different things than we, they, whoever, you know, the different generation prioritise. And so I think the empathy part has to be a really significant part of the conversation. And so, you know, seeking first to understand, um, the, you know, asking a lot of questions to sort of, because we just, 
go to the polar opposites. We go to the stereotype. All old people are this. All young people are that. All men are like this. All women are like we. It's just our default to to want to neatly package everybody into um, a way that we can generalize about them without having to work too hard. Um, but no one's ever that simple. And there's so many layers of complexity and and uniqueness. Nuanced, and, yeah. yeah. And I think that encouragement for for everybody, regardless of which generation you you are, to be you know seeking to understand to to think about what it looks like for for others to have experienced as you say you know um, young people have grown up exposed to technology as a first language like it's they haven't ever learnt technology they are technology <laughs> like life is technology they don't um, have a, another way to function whereas then you've got these in between generations who are at varying levels of exposure to that um, and it's it's almost when you to think about it as a if you think about it as a language you know where where our seniors may be speaking the, their native tongue, you know, yep. and then you've got these in between people who kind of can speak a little bit of both, you know, and but then down Bilingual. here, yep. yeah, <laughs> down here there, um, and it's like an increasing distance from that mother tongue though, mm. and so now this is the new mother tongue, and and this is what they're born, but that that can actually breed some um, assumption in the language that we speak, you know that. Um, in, and so I think, again, just always this sense of wanting to grow our understanding of what what must it be like for an older person who hasn't had the same exposure to technology to have to learn the technology that we learn. I was driven to the airport in a taxi one time down in Tasmania, actually, by a guy, and he said that he has decided he is not doing computers. He's just not going to do them. <laughs> and so, and he's like, you know, you can't make me. You know, yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> monk or something. Yeah, so it's <laughs> like, I mean, I had to laugh at the sort of, GPS that was on his um, dash yeah. and the, the <laughs> fact that he took a credit card payment from me and all those yeah. sorts of things, but that's another story. But he, but he was talking about the he had to apply, you know, for the the renewal of his license or something like that. And now it's an, it's entirely online. You actually can't do it in person anymore. You can pay it in person, but the actual process has to be done online. And but he's, you know. I don't do computers and I don't need a computer. And I'm like, well, it sounds like you do need a computer because you need to renew your license. But but the thing I kept hearing from him was just fear. Like you could just hear that he was so overwhelmed by, because, and it's not even worth learning anyway. You just learn one thing and then they change it on you. Like, you know, he was, so he's in this, you know, he's maybe 70 years old. He's like, I'm too old for all this change. And, and, but I was just thought, oh man, it must actually be quite hard for you to, because he's obviously not done a natural transition yeah. and he's kept his distance from it. And now that that is a massive gap to try and jump. You know, and he's getting closer to the end. So he's thinking, that's right. He's like, it's not worth it. I'm too tired know? for this. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, it's funny. But, um, you know, and, and I mean, we, we, joke about it but it's like if you ever want to learn you know fix a computer or do something like ask someone younger but it's true you know that they've, they've got so much to offer us in that space because it's their first language yeah. but um i think that technology piece is it's a it's a great metaphor for everything about um the generational divide or mm-hmm. or potential divide and also the the challenge it is to try and bring because it's a, it's a different language, you know, and so this guy wants to phone you, this guy wants to email you, yeah, this person's like, can you put it Snapchat, in a messenger? Yeah, yeah. And this one's like, you know, like, I'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll work it out some other way. We'll just like think it and it'll turn into technology. That's yeah. the next step. So, yeah. um, but, you know, everybody's trying to relate 
from entirely different perspectives. Yeah. I think someone said to me once that there's no one on the planet you can't learn something from, Um, whether they're a tiny toddler or a 90-year-old on their deathbed, you know, there's always something we can learn. And so if you have that kind of posture in a workplace, you're going to appreciate what the older generation bring and some of the wisdom and experience they've got, but then the younger generation with their technology and their efficiency. Yeah. And And with their energy and their creativity and their sense of what's possible because they've, I mean, it is highly likely that even... Uh, like a 20-year-old has seen more than a 70-year-old has in terms of because just from their lounge room. You know, like they're, they're more aware of what's been happening in their generation than a 70-year-old might have been when they were 20. Yeah, you know, yep. a 20-year-old might know more about the, that generation than the people in it themselves because of all the information that's available. So it, there's we can't make any assumption that yep. this equals you know lots or you know nothing or, you know, as you say, you've got something to learn from everybody. And I think the language of leadership is to keep drawing from that and inc- and bringing people together and, and highlighting the similarities or the commonality and, you know, not making the difference the main thing. Mm. You know, it's Nikki Gumbel who talks all the time about it in faith context. He says, what unites us is infinitely greater than what divides us when we talk about theological perspectives. You know, it's Jesus who unites us and that's a pretty significant part of the picture. So if we can just stay (laughs) focused on that. And I think that kind of is true across every aspect of how we would relate. There's actually probably a lot more we have in common in our humanity Mm. than, than there is difference. And so I think the leadership piece in all of that is to keep drawing them together and speaking a a united kind of language or an overlap of language or a generous to each other kind of language rather than, um, you know, keeping those stereotypes, um, you know, fresh and refined by speaking into those. Oh, you young people wouldn't understand this because and old people, that's a computer, you know, whatever yeah. <laughs> it is and um, that we, we can actually perpetuate the stereotype in really unhelpful ways. Yeah, for sure. And it is a changing world. I think we're the first generation right now probably that people can post something on the internet and become instantly famous. Yeah, right. So the Justin Bieber effect and and that's unheard of for the older generation where it's years of faithfulness and hard work and and so just trying to make that adjustment in, you know, what the world is now and what the benefits and pitfalls of that are is is a real thing to get working on workplaces. But no, that's really good. So talking of the senior group, um, senior leaders or people in workplaces, they have what um, we've talked about before, that kind of unconscious competence so they're better at things than they realize or if they realize they're good at them they don't know how on earth did I get good at this (laughs) and so we talked a little bit about um, you know senior leaders deconstructing their learning through reflection Mm -hmm. in order to then teach it to emerging generations I reckon some older leaders listening to this would go yeah good idea how on earth do I do it yeah where do I start yeah you got any words of wisdom into that space yeah it's a great thing to be mindful of because the very nature of unconscious competence is that we're not conscious of it. <laughs> and But um, the example I like to use of this is driving. So most people who've driven for any length of time, it is actually an unconscious competence. You don't sit in the car and talk yourself through all the steps of driving. <laughs> and, in fact, you get somewhere and go, I don't really remember driving. Like I don't remember the the mechanics of driving. The Did I indicate you know windscreen wipers, mirrors, gears, feet, what were they doing? Like we just do it and we're more interested in actually like where do I have to turn? You know, we're looking at the geography of it rather than the actual um, activity of the driving itself. But then you sit in a car to teach your teenage child to drive and you go, 
we're going to drive out the driveway and turn left. It's like there's 7,500 things that you have to do before you do that, you know, um, and they don't know those things. And so our usefulness as their instructor is only as good as our capacity to break that back down into steps. Mm. And so, I mean, in in some things we can, um, as senior leaders, we can kind of step back and go, well, let me just think about that. Like, how did I come to know what I know? You know, who was it that told me? When was the first moment I remember doing this this thing? And, you know, what were the, what was the context of that? We can kind of deconstruct it a little bit you know, go back through the, our, the, the archives of our memory and, <laughs> and try and remember, you know, who was it that told me that? Or when did I do that the first time? And what did I have, you know, what was my consciousness around that? Um, and I mean, that in itself can be helpful. I think particularly the older you get and the further you are away from that, the harder that is to access in the memory. Um, so some tips, I mean, I think first and foremost for every leader, wherever you are in whatever stage you're at is bringing that level of consciousness up about the, what am I learning and what is it, what's the impact of that learning on me so that six months time, six years time, 10 years time, I can actually tell this to somebody else, you know, that, because I think we do tend to just drift a little bit through our learning or through our experiences. And it's not unless we actually do the unpacking that they're of any value to anybody else. Mm. And so I think it's just a good leadership skill or a leadership sort of focus to have that we would always be thinking about our thinking, you know, doing that work of, of right now, like I'm writing a sermon, let me just think about how did I get to that idea, you know, or, or what is it that, what's my process here that's working for me? And so then someone says, Luke, how do you write a sermon? And you get to say, well, the first thing I do is rather than, oh, I just, you know, write it. Ask, ask God and <laughs> yeah, he just gives yeah. you the words. He or normally just, just tells just me. Just wing it on the day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I just, yep. What do you mean prepare? I just show up on Sundays and have a <laughs> just drink. Just trust the Holy yeah. Spirit. Oh, God, <laughs> Are you talking about where do I clip the mic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also I think for leaders um, who've maybe, and I, I also think it's important to remain close to learning leaders, because that helps us keep mindful of what the learning process is like. So as you develop in your learning, uh, your leadership, you tend to distance, you get further distance, you know, organizationally away from the people who are doing their first leading, you know, because you're now leading with the leader of the leaders and the staff that lead those teams that lead the people who do the developing. And so you can get some distance away from that, the the deeper you go into your own leadership journey. And so some intentionality to kind of cycle back, you know, whether it's to mentor somebody or to, um, you know, want to be more present in the places where development is taking place. Mm. Um, it kind of refreshes again. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I remember. going to ask you the questions that make you think about that. Yeah, exactly. So what did you do when you started? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. And, and then, but then you here, watch. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. But when I'm back down here, I've got to actually explain to them. So yeah. no, that's yeah. a really good and insight. And I think too, having younger, like, um, the leaders who are most, who have learned most recently are the ones who'll be most aware of how they learned. Mm -hmm. And so, because we often think you have to sort of be the really experienced person to do the teaching of something, Mm -hmm. but they may actually be best equipped to do it because yeah, it's it's fresh in their mind. They remember the three steps or they they've done a little bit more thinking about that. Um, and so then it becomes maybe a a partnership where you, you're sowing the the maturity and the wisdom and the experience of the older leader Mm. into that journey, but they're not actually the ones that are having to do the step-by-step stuff. So you're you're sort of leveraging those who are a bit more familiar with the more current, as you say, recent with the step-by-step can be that person to, Mm. to lead that. I think the danger is in leadership, the further you go and the more disconnected you get from those people that are learning right now, 
the more irrelevant you become yeah. for emerging generations. And so getting back into that space, you're learning off one another. You might be the senior leader who's been there for 50 years. They're the fresh person, but you're actually learning stuff from them that's going to shape you exactly, as that senior yeah. leader relating back to a staff team or other leaders you've got. So, yeah, that's a really helpful insight. I think. Yeah, it's good. And I think too, just even again, it's that seeking first to understand that when um, – when as a senior experience kind of leader, you do go to help somebody through something, it's, you know, asking, what do you already know? What, where are you up to? You know, like that you're, you're seeking to not that assumption. So just go write your sermon, Luke. See you Sunday, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Like, Single swim. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that you sort of, how are you feeling about that? You know, where, what, where's the point of challenge for you? You know, what are you most concerned about or what are you finding hard or, you know, those sorts of things that, that just draws you back into that empathy, which, you know, hopefully then kind of fires the synapses to go, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, I remember feeling that too, you know, but you're giving permission for that for the emerging leader to to show you what the the points of, of difficulty are or, or where it is that you could be speaking into their situation. Yeah, very good. Excellent. So we might um, finish up this conversation on the emerging generations mm-hmm. with um, a question for you. What makes you optimistic about it? You've got to front up every day. You've got to work with these these uh, young people and, and that would be really energising and, and challenging. But what are you most optimistic about? Well, as I said, I, I, I get excited because Jesus is building his church and he is, you know, infinitely powerful and creative and good. And so the longer he does it and the more people he raises up and the more history they have, the more that is possible for our young people. So I'm super excited for what they could do. I mean, there's a stat that's that's been shared around um, it's that 60 percent of today's teenagers will work in jobs that don't yet exist you know, because the movement of, yeah. of technology and the changing workplaces and all that sort of stuff. If you apply that into the context of the church, like if some percentage of our emerging leaders right now would be leading into spaces that we've never been before, mm-hmm. you know, or exciting, they'd be it? leading in a way that we've never led before, utilizing technology and, and ideas that we've never thought to draw together before. Like that has to get you a little bit excited to think about what's possible. You'd hope they're not doing what we're doing in 50 years, wouldn't you? Please I think they'd no. be completely irrelevant if they are. Yeah. So, yep. yeah, so creating space, um, opportunity, resource for young people to flourish and to try things and some of them will flop spectacularly (laughs) some of them will just be incredible Um, but that is exciting and that's that I guess that pioneer entrepreneurial kind of spirit as well that maybe some um, older leaders had when they first started 40 50 years ago but it's just become a bit of a settled rhythm and so getting back into that space to say how do we actually release these people who are probably more current with what's going on in the world to actually try things that may end up being the next frontier for mission and then the next um, way of really reaching yeah. and engaging with people. So We don't lead in a void. We, we're the sum of our history. You know, we're, we're coming into a, a situation that's already been established by a whole lot of people investing a whole lot of things. My leadership was made possible. You know, my experience of ministry, my offering into ministry was made possible by all the things that happened before me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that again is another source for me of encouragement because the next generation have another generation of things that have come before them. So, mm-hmm. you know, the grace and the the freedom to, to lead like I have had, you know, on them is, is inevitably going to let them do more because they're drawing from a deeper well. Well, thanks so much, Kim, for joining us today. It's been an incredibly rich conversation. I think we've learned so much. And if I've learned a lot, I'm hoping the guests will learn a lot as well. So thanks so much for coming and and being part of the program today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the As One Leadership Podcast. 
getting you in the room with experienced leaders so you can grow and thrive as a leader. This podcast is hosted by Luke Williams and brought to you by Follow Baptist Church. If you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free and leave a review. Your feedback will help us to grow further and bring new insightful content to you. For those watching on YouTube, please like this video, leave a comment and subscribe to the Follow Baptist Church channel. Ultimately, if you found this episode valuable, please share it with others who can also benefit from it. We can't wait to share more experiences and knowledge in our next episode from Melbourne to the world.